Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Traveling Hoopers podcast. This time we have a special guest with us, Dr. Teresa Runstedler, the author of Blackfall, a really powerful book that we've been going over for the past couple of weeks in our book club series. And as always, I am your host, Alan Pettigrew Jr. And in front of me are my two best friends in the world. Philip Dixon and Calvin McGowan. Guys, go ahead and let the people hear your voice. Once again, per usual, I'm Calvin McGowan. It is a pleasure to be here. This is going to be a fun one. Yes, and my name is Philip Dixon. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, it's going to be a quite the eventful hour. I will say that as well as of right now. All right. And uh, guys, if you're noticing uh, a little extra mm, sensitivity or, you know, nervousness in my voice, it's because we have Dr. Ron Stedler on the podcast, and I am just like super excited to pick her brain over this book that we've been able to read for the past couple months. And we're really just going to get straight into it. Uh, Dr. Ron Stedler, can you please kind of tell us what the process was for you getting the book from concept to uh, publication? I won't go back as far to say how many years that I've been working on this project because uh, I can see Phillips laughing over there as the <laughs> resident historian, um, knowing how long and arduous uh, a lot of these projects are, particularly when you're looking at historical sources and really trying to stay uh, close to the materials that you find in various archives. Um, but I actually started out looking at the relationship between race and criminality through the story of Len Bias in 1986. Um, Len Bias, of course, was drafted by the Boston Celtics in that year. And shortly after the NBA draft, succumbed to a cocaine overdose. And he became this uh, symbolic figure in uh, the punitive turn in the war on drugs in 1986. Um, under President Reagan. So I started there and I, I wrote an article on that, but I just couldn't figure out why it was that Len Bias was so immediately read by folks at that time as a Black criminal and a, a Black criminal and a Black drug addict as somebody connected to the quote unquote inner city because, of course, if you know anything about Len Bias's history, he's actually from suburban Maryland. Um, he grew up in a two-parent household. Um, he had a pretty, you know, regular childhood. Um, and so his personal story didn't fit with that myth. So I decided to go back in time and figure out what's the prehistory to that moment. Mm. Um, so I actually started looking at all of the reports of various drug arrests of NBA players across the late 60s and all throughout the, the decade of the 70s. And that's where I started this story. And one of the things that I found were consistent reports over the course of that decade um, tying Black ball players to these possession arrests. Um, often they'd be driving while Black um, and they get stopped by police, and then they would find very minor possession uh, quantities in their possession. Um, but this became a recurrent theme in the press. And I came to see that that earlier period 
was the period in which the black athlete as somebody who used drugs and potentially always had this um, criminal tendency was really kind of ingrained in the public's mind. And so from there, I tried to figure out, well, why? Mm. Why is that? Why um, did the black athlete as criminal become such a narrative in this period? And so the further back I went into the early 1970s, I found all sorts of antitrust cases um, led by black players who were really trying to contest uh, the monopolistic practices of the NBA and its team owners. And they would often get cast as troublesome, as lazy, as asking for too much, even though they were often pointing out the fact that they didn't have the same labor rights as any other worker um, in American society. And I came to see a lot of this narrative about the inherent criminality of Black athletes as tied to those earlier labor struggles as a mm. kind of as a kind of narrative um, that you know helped the white public make sense of the troublesome the quote unquote troublesome nature of black athletes in this period who are fighting for racial and labor rights. Um, so that's a long sort of long winded way of saying I started in 1986. And then I just followed it backwards and tried to make sense of these larger racialized narratives um, surrounding basketball. And it's one of the, the best places to look if you want to yeah. find out what the American public thinks about young black men who are successful um, and who are, you know, skilled in athletics. That's where you go. There's all sorts of really... Um, I would say uninhibited discussions about race in sports magazines. For sure, for sure. Um, so, the, all right. So, like, kind of later on in the book, you begin to talk about basically how, uh, what's it? Oh. But one of the, uh, when they were trying to pick a new GM after Kennedy, that part of that process kind of boiled down to them trying to get somebody with like political connections. Um, and right in addition to that, when they started looking at like trying to crack down on drugs, that they basically had their own little task force that was composed of a lot of former FBI guys and you draw parallels to the way in which like the NBA's kind of like uh, organizational drug policies with the drug policies of, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, particularly right as Reagan kind of comes in. And something that I've kind of been wondering is like, did you see anything where that would kind of suggest like that uh, the people in charge of the NBA like kind of took like ideas from like some of their friends in government or like if some of their friends in government kind of took ideas from them in terms of like how they, in, in terms of like their, the approach to like handling like drug offenses basically. Yeah, okay. So I think that 
um, drug policy within the NBA both reflected and also influenced drug policy outside of the league. Um, so one of the things that happens in the early 70s, partially in response to some highly publicized arrests of, of black players, including none other than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and uh, Lucius Allen, and um, they were caught uh, with a small amount, I, I think it was marijuana and perhaps LSD. Don't quote me on that. It's been a while since I looked at that chapter. Um, but they were arrested again for uh, driving while black later on in the evening after a game. And the NBA realized that they had a potential public relations nightmare on their hands because at the time, uh, their fan base was still majority white, or at least the fan base that they wanted to attract. Let mm. me put it that way. The fan base that they wanted to attract, the white middle-class folks who lived in the suburbs, um, you know, they were thinking of this in terms of damage control. How do we show the white public that enjoys watching basketball, that's already sort of suspicious of the changing racial demographics in basketball as the sport became blacker, both demographically and aesthetically. Um, how do we show them that we still have control over this sport? Well, they you know, were very intent on uh, publishing reports in the mainstream press about the fact that they had the security force. Ironically, staffed by a lot of ex-FBI and also ex-local policemen. One would presumably think perhaps the same guys who were policing young black men in the neighborhoods of those cities or had made a career of that. Um, because of course, this came on the heels of, um, uh, you know, uh, a stepped up policing of black neighborhoods starting in the mid to late 60s and heading into the 70s, ramping up again with the war on crime. So in some ways they were both kind of feeding off of each other, um, looking for solutions over how to control uh, young black men in leisure time in this case, because if you think about it, these guys are, aren't actually on the clock exactly. when they're being followed by these security guys. And what struck me was that, you know, even though this amount of hyper-policing has been, been become so normalized for us, I think in 2020, by the time we get to 2023, Back in the 1970s, the ACLU was saying, look, this is a violation of their right to privacy. This is completely paternalistic. You're, you're treating these guys like they're children. We need to get this practice out of sports. And so you can see the kind of, the same kinds of discussions about what is the appropriate um, role of police in tackling drug usage particularly in black communities, it's happening in the NBA. Um, and folks, again, are getting this narrative of young black men always at risk of mm. becoming criminal, of becoming drug users. Even these guys who are the, the 0.00001% 
of the population that make it into professional basketball, they are being targeted in the same ways that young black men in um, cities across the country are. So yeah, I would say they both reflected and then they also sort of set the stage or grease the wheels for wider society's acceptance of this kind of hyper-policing um, and punishment of what really were minor drug crimes. Um, so I underlined a lot <laughs> during the um, <laughs> So do so I. I. <laughs> um, but there's a few things that caught my eye. One of them being, um, when you talked about, uh, you said, um, although for many white sports writers, playground play suggested a lack of sophistication, even a kind of uh, black moral failing in terms of how, you know, um, the actual playing style itself. When I read that, that caught me my attention because in 2022, 2023, that same rhetoric slash line of thinking has infiltrated its way to the NFL, right? So me being from Kansas City, that's what, you know, there was a rhetoric earlier this past season of Patrick Mahomes is the best player, but not the best quarterback. Um, because, or Lamar Jackson, so on, so many different types of people um, where this rhetoric is still showcased. Um, so I just w was wondering your thoughts on how so many people would think, oh, that's an old way of thinking about sports writing and sports itself. But the same rhetoric is being said today in 2023 in comparison to how it was in, in the late 70s or early 80s for black players in the, in the NBA. Well, what's so interesting to me when I first um, started writing this book, I didn't know that this playing style, what folks called playground ball, was actually a racial slur in the mm. early, late 60s, early 70s, because you know, me growing up watching basketball in the 1980s and 90s thought, oh, well, this is the quintessential style of the NBA. This is what made the NBA into a global sports property that makes tons of money. I mean, it's really on the backs of this stylistic innovation that came out of playground ball that the NBA has become so literally valuable. Um, so I didn't, that kind of shocked me, the degree to which white sports writers at the time um, understood playground ball as being connected to um, Black culture uh, in the quote-unquote inner city, which at the time was imagined to be pathological in all of these ways, too violent, too aggressive. Um, folks are out for themselves. They're not playing in, you know, uh, in organized ways. It's anarchic, right? So it was really about the context of that time. They were reading what they were seeing on the court through the lens of the urban crisis mm. and, you know, the imagined um, decline of American cities who, you know, which was, of course, um, you know, caused by, in the public's imagination, by young Black men who were out of control. So how does that get repurposed to today in, in 2022, 2023? 
again, I think it's all kind of contextual. So we've had this recent um, you know, movement over the last 10 years, Black Lives Matter. We've had, um, particularly during the pandemic, an upsurge in um, uh, you know, activism that has spilled out onto the streets, that has brought a kind of laser focus onto continuing inequalities in these same spaces that folks were thinking about in the 1970s. So it's not surprising to me that when you have a critical mass of black players right. now emerging in the quarterback mm. position, which was the position of whiteness and white authority, that there are folks who are saying, well, they're not playing that position correctly. It, you know, they're not following the traditional scripts. And that comes with all of the racial baggage from off of the field. Um, so to me, it's, it's, you know, it's so similar. And I was, you know, when you mentioned Lamar Jackson, if you want to talk about parallels between, you know, the seventies and now the way that the NFL, you know, basically kind of wasn't touching him to give him a contract that was commensurate with his talents to me speaks to um, the same kind of blackballing that occurred against talented black players back in the early 70s. So there's tons of echoes there. You can see them using very similar kinds of tactics to disparage what, in essence, has been an emergence of black players in all of the power positions in mm -hmm. football over the last 15 years. In that, um, and to kind of piggyback off that, because what, what came to mind for me <clears throat> is so many of these sports and these quote-unquote playground styles of how to engage these sports, um, a lot of this start off in many sports from, you know, low-income communities gathering in their own communities and inserting themselves and their own imprint into the sports, right? This can be from the Negro Leagues all mm -hmm. the way to the ABA, um, just, you know, and then a shift change once people understood or wanted to in some way acknowledge that capital could be gained mm. from, you know, these kind of uh, insertions of playing styles from different people. And some sports have either doubled down and become more exclusive or some mm -hmm. sports have tried and tried in quotes to um, be more inclusive, but usually that's not showcased in a very productive way um well, it's also within certain boundaries right so yeah. you can be john morant until you really are john morant you know right then that gets a little problematic i'm not you know in favor of random gunplay on one's instagram live feed by any stretch but you could almost see the way that the league was like oh Okay, like we better we better make a show that we are going to reform this young man so that we can continue to use him as you know an up and coming superstar in the league. And they quickly, you know, made that made that change and turned it into a kind of narrative of redemption, um, but or rehabilitation, right? Mm. Um, for him, which I thought was so, so interesting. But going back to your other point about how 
you know, these games develop often in these spaces that are overlooked by the rest of society. It makes me think of, um, you know, the section in the book on Earl Monroe, where I look at his early life in Philly and the fact that, you know, for him, and it's so interesting, Black Sports Magazine is a treasure trove of really in-depth interviews with um, Black sports stars during the 1970s. And one of the things that he talks about is the fact that Black style basically emerged from a kind of communal effort to make a way out of no way in the midst of massive disinvestment from the very communities that folks like Earl Monroe were coming up in. So he talks about the fact that, yeah, the way that we play is different because we're not playing organized basketball. We don't have access to that, yeah. you know, in Black Philly neighborhoods. We're playing on half moon bas um, backboards. We've got potholes on our courts. So we have to figure out creative ways to still play the game despite this context of inequality. Um, so for me, that was a really kind of brilliant retort to a lot of the white sports journalists who were saying, oh, this just shows that they're untutored. You know, they need to be brought into line. They need to learn how to play a team game. Because um, folks like Earl Monroe didn't see a kind of conflict between individual virtuosity and a team effort. Yeah. Um, and that that typifies, you know, a Black approach to basketball, Black approach to a lot of sports, actually. Um, again, coming out of the social context in which they they grew up in. Definitely. And um, Dr. Ron Stedler, earlier you mentioned Lynn Bias. Um, and I know during the book, you mentioned more of the stars of the time in uh, like the different infractions that they uh, ran into during their time. Were there any lesser known players that during your research that you found, I was like, okay, they had this struggle as well. Um, I'm thinking of Wally Jones, mm. who was somebody who was, um, you know, not an insignificant player in the context of the 70s, but the average person who doesn't really, you know, study 70s basketball very, um, you know, closely might not know who Wally Jones was. Um, but he was somebody who, uh, you know, was traded from the 76ers to the Milwaukee Bucks right around the same time when um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson were playing. Actually, it was the last time they won the title. So it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out over the next few weeks. Um, but he was somebody who spoke out um, quite openly in the press and said, look, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. To me, the police are like an occupation force. I think he actually calls them the, the Gestapo at one point. He was used to being pulled over um, and harassed by police. He understood what it meant to grow up in a space of deprivation where essentially the local government, the federal government and the rest of white society had turned their backs on um, poor black communities, leaving them to largely fend for themselves. 
Um, and yet, you know, he also, ironically, even though he's doing a lot of anti-drug activism with young folks in um, urban communities, he ends up getting, um, you know, slandered for potential drug use um, and, you know, finds himself on, you know, in, in a situation where he can no longer play with the bucks and nobody seems to want to pick him up when they put him on waivers. And so, and this, you know, according to other reports by NBA players at the time, one of the quickest ways to get a player off your team was particularly a black player was to say, well, they might be using drugs. <laughs> and that was the quickest way to sort of invalidate their contracts. Um, so he's somebody who, you know, I think in some ways encapsulates the era. He was politically black. He, you know, was, uh, you know, working out in the community, but he was also somebody who experienced, um, you know, unequal treatment by the criminal justice system and then unequal treatment by, you know, the Bucks franchise itself. Um, so he was one of the interesting stories uh, that I uncovered um, in the course of this research. Okay, so piggybacking ish off of that, um, right? Something that I'm sure happens over the course of researching a book like this is that you run into a lot of, right, interesting or important information that kind of ends up on the cutting room floor as you make, you know, choices about what to leave in and what to keep out. Was there anything that to you was particularly interesting or you thought was otherwise fairly important that you weren't able to include for whatever reason? Yeah, and I'm thinking I might turn it into an article. Mm. Um, so uh, chapter four, which is about um, the, the growing power and presence of black players in the league, um, in the mid 1970s, or actually in the ABA as well, um, in the mid 1970s, uh, you know, it just got so long. Like I, <laughs> I had to get rid of the part on Walt Frazier, which, you know, really pained me, but that's actually published in another collection where I look at him as, you know, sort of the mold after which Michael Jordan um, you know, the mold that Michael Jordan followed in the sense mm. that he was able to turn himself into a brand when folks were just starting to learn how to do that um, and how to navigate that space as Black athletes in um, the early to mid-70s. And so I talk about, you know, his other business ventures. I talk about his um, endorsement deal with Puma. Um, and some of the other um, aspects of his self-presentation as this modern um, urban Black man. If you've ever seen any pictures of Clyde, right, he had smooth style. He knew how to market himself, um, you know, as this is sort of fashion. I mean, if you think about even... Um, uh, black players and their connections to fa the fashion world now. Mm -hmm. Walt Frazier was doing that back in the 70s. Um, so I had to 
not put that in there. I really wanted to put that in there. Another aspect of um, of growing black dominance in the sport that I couldn't fit in was this kind of racialized framing of the 1974 NBA championship between the Boston Celtics who were billed as, you know, a white led team under Dave Cowens and John Havlicek um, and then uh, um, the Milwaukee Bucks who were, you know, led by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson. And it became this kind of contest between ostensibly white ball and black ball. Um, now in the end, of course, the Celtics ended up winning, but we know how the rest of the story goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and black ball eventually take over anyways, but it became this way for, especially folks in Boston, but all across the country really, to um, think through these questions of racial integration um, and, and you know, what they called busing at that time. They were seeing um, those broader civil rights issues through the lens of this contest, this basketball context. So that was another piece that had to be left on the cutting floor, unfortunately. Um, how you laid out this uh, different aspects of this book um, are done are done in ways that is easy to digest for many people. Um, just like how you mentioned black and white ball just a second ago, that exact same thing happened with Iowa and uh, LSU, right? Uh, for mm -hmm. Yes. Of, and when it first yeah. started, uh, before, you know, when they both made it to the championship, I had a conversation with my cousin and was like, I guarantee, I don't know how it's going to showcase, but the racial... Mm -hmm of this is going to showcase in some way shape or form and obviously it did um mm -hmm. that is a common thing that i you know kind of bumping back and off of uh, a lot of our questions uh and this one is there are a lot of continuities and similarities of stuff that are happening in this book the stuff that you will just see today but this book will allow people to recognize and kind of mm -hmm. be able to showcase that these aren't new issues these right. are these are issues that have been had over and over again um so in of you know things of this nature um i really enjoyed the aspects of you kind of laying out how kennedy recommended gordon right for um you know his his his, his position once he retires and mm -hmm. the the board was like no way we're not we're not doing this we're going to insert our own person because of political connections so on and so forth um but i also kind of in my mind i thought of it as an analogy for how racism works in a general sense of mm -hmm. um, one singular individual can't overturn the uh system right the 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 system of slavery you know the the, the things that encompass that um so with that being the case uh what are your thoughts on you know just the specific idea of you know kennedy doing what he can for this specific individual who he thought might have been right for whatever reason for the position but 
the system, the systematic overtake of everyone else did not establish or did not allow that, you know, that progression to ensue. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's so interesting about that story is that Simon Burdine, he believed in change within institutions, like changing from the inside out, right, rather than changing from the outside in. So he ends up becoming, you know, he's not a former athlete, <laughs> which is how most of these guys get into those positions in the first place. They have a longstanding connection to the league and they sort of progress from player to maybe coach, maybe GM, and then maybe front office uh, or league office. He did not. He went to law school. He actually worked in corporate law. <laughs> doing work around challenges, antitrust challenges. And that's why he was initially um, an attractive candidate to the NBA main league office, because he was somebody who could help them with the Oscar Robertson at all be the NBA case, which was, you know, um, holding back the merger between the American Basketball Association and the, the NBA at the time. Um, but ultimately he gets into that position. He becomes, uh, the deputy commissioner under Walter Kennedy. He rises, um, to, you know, to become the highest ranking black sports administrator in all of North American, um, sports. And yet ultimately he is a lonely figure in the NBA's main office. He's the one guy. And he himself, in his various reflections on his career, particularly in Black Sports magazine, um, and also on some Black independent uh, radio shows, reflects on the fact that he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He's conscious in the sense that he understands his burden as a Black man a pioneer in sports administration, um, he also sees himself and identifies with the NBA as an institution. And so he's caught between these two competing identities. Am I the company man or am I a black man who ha you know, is going to help improve the working conditions of this majority black league? And ultimately, the NBA's, you know, powers that be said, well, we can't take that risk. Um, so we're going to go with Larry O'Brien, not just because, you know, he has these political connections in D.C. and had been a longtime mover and shaker in Washington, D.C., um, but also because he didn't carry that racial baggage with him. So in some ways, it shows the limits of this idea of change from within, particularly when there's only one token guy who has to take on the full weight of this institution, which is why I'm always suspicious of these token efforts at including Black ownership in these sports leagues. A, I'm not entirely sure that having a Black face on a for-profit business that is interested in making profits over, you know, 
um, its workers. I, I'm not sure if that's actually the route to liberation. <laughs> Don't think so. But also because, you know, even if you have a few black owners in there, they're gonna come up against the same thing that Simon Gordine is, which is they will be the one lonely face or the couple lonely faces within a structure that at its roots was always about white ownership over athletes' contracts. So and you're researching, you're you know, in the stacks, you're, you're doing your thing. Um, in terms of uh, understanding the book and why you're doing so, uh, the NBA is, you know, in racism on the sidelines and the NBA. Uh, okay, sorry, I missed the, I'm missing parts of your question because you're kind of cutting in and out for me. Oh. I don't know if the rest of you are hearing that as well. Yeah. But, okay. Okay, so while you're doing the research for this book, yeah. um, you know, it's taking some time, but while you're doing so, the NBA is, you know, um, the, the NBA is kind of taking in this in racism, right? It is on the sidelines of, you know, they're kind of bringing in Black Lives Matter um, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. While you're making this book, what are your thoughts? as this is being showcased on like the wider scale of what the NBA is today? Yeah, so, you know, your question makes me think of um, David Stern. And I'll start with him because he's sort of the, the guy who, he's, he, he's in the background for a lot of the history that I'm talking about, um, had been outside counsel to the NBA since 1966, I think. Um, so he saw all of these struggles in the 70s. So by the time he becomes commissioner in 1984, he sees the writing on the wall. He knows that this is going to be moving forward, uh, a sport that is characterized by American blackness. And so instead of running away from it, he's like, okay, well, let's figure out how to monetize this. And he does that very cleverly. <laughs> Um, he, you know, begins to look at how do we market a certain kind of curated version of American Blackness through a figure like, for example, Michael Jordan. Mm. It's, you know, the style on the court is undeniably Black and, you know, has echoes of the style that folks saw emerge from the ABA and the NBA in the 60s and 70s. But he himself, Michael Jordan, becomes this kind of depoliticized figure that, you know, becomes very marketable, not just to a white public in the United States, but actually a global public that is interested in the kind of flashy style, the aerial play, et cetera. So by the time you get to, and I'm thinking of um, all of the activity that went on um, really with the emergence of Black Lives Matter, you know, LeBron and folks wearing the hoodies, I think that was in 2012, all the way up to, sorry, <laughs> your phone just fell out, all the way up to um, the NBA bubble, 
when you saw what was essentially a wildcat strike after the shooting of, of Jacob Blake. Um, and the league this time around doesn't discipline the players, but says, and I think I, I recall a quote by Adam Silver where he said, we're going to respect their right to free speech. Mm. So how do we get to that point? I think some of it has to do with the power of the NBPA as one of the most powerful unions in um, professional sports. I think some of it has to do with the fact that star players were in on this, um, uh, you know, at least symbolic forms of activism and using their social media platforms in order to put this forth. So the genie was out of the ball. And, you know, in order to crack down on that, this would then destroy um, what I think is now the latest pivot in NBA marketing, which is that they are, you know, essentially a woke league. You know, they're the progressive league, unlike the NFL. We're going to actually let the players put slogans on the backs of their shirts. We're going to, you know, institutionalize community programs. That actually has a, a longer history as well. But um, to me, it's, it comes out of the NBA reading the terrain and seeing that they can't actually come down on these things anymore because the players have a level of power and social capital cultural capital with their fans that makes it impossible for them to it, it would almost seem inconsistent with the brand identity of the nba so to me it's it's not really that the nba is inherently progressive but more so that they've figured out that this is a way to actually market their league in contrast to some of the other leagues out there you know, all the folks who believe in racial justice come to us, you know, and I think the WNBA, for example, with its um, even more um, progressive politics, particularly around um, questions of race and sexuality, yeah. is actually showing that it is profitable to be that type of league in this day and age. Yeah, because most of these, these meet the end of the day. The MLB wants to make more money than the NFL. The NFL wants to make more money than the NBA, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, in other, uh, they're gonna they're gonna try to achieve that goal, uh, no, yeah. no matter what the, the 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 underlining goal is, right? So, okay. Yeah, because there's nothing inherently anti-racist about the NBA. We know this from looking at Sterling, and. <laughs> We know this from looking at all of the scandals that have emerged in recent years, particularly surrounding um, white owners who continue to have, you know, um, racist aspects of their corporate lives and personal lives. So we know that that's not necessarily, you know, something that runs from top to bottom of the organization, but it has become, I think, thanks to the players, part of the brand identity of the NBA. 
going forward. Absolutely. Okay. That's my skeptical look at this. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to. I think you're on the right track there. I could talk. I mean, even I thinking about the CBA, for example, some some folks were bringing up, okay, the the marijuana clause, um, and the black ownership clause, and the ownership clause. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. Is this a way for them to begin to co-opt players into the ranks of ownership? That's my skeptical way of looking at it, of course. Um, and then the marijuana clause, I was thinking, well, is this a way for them to position themselves to be at the forefront of branding once marijuana becomes legal? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. What, like a per that is a perfect marketing bonanza for the NBA. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything is treacherous when you know what you're looking for, especially as far as like context and everything goes. It was like just reading reading the book, and then like you were guys were talking about earlier with like LSU in Iowa, like everything that was a fallout over it just it reeked of more than what was being said, and it's it's really alarming. Yes, yeah, coded language, right? Like like. Yeah. The coded language that was being said towards LSU of like, you know, and like certain people cheering for, I mean, Caitlin Clark is a fantastic player, but like being able to decipher the reasons they were, they were rooting for Iowa in comparison mm -hmm. to outside of just like the skill of the player was ridiculous. Like, like we all, we all you know, if you, you saw it, you heard it. And then the aftermath of it was like, it was mine. It wasn't, it wasn't mind boggling to me. But it was kind of mind-boggling to see how many people didn't realize what was happening. Um, they kind of just fell victim to this to the conversation. And it was like what I yeah. What I found so interesting, uh, you know, on Twitter was all of these white dudes coming out in defense of Iowa and um, um, oh my God, why is the name slipping me, Caitlin? Caitlin <laughs> you know, Clark. like. As Caitlin Clark, as if they needed to be her protector, right? And so for me, it was this additional level of misogynoir where you had these white men feeling that they needed to step up and defend this white woman in the face of, you know, a feisty black woman. Mm -hmm. You know, it it just, it, 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 it definitely echoed a lot of the conversations that I pulled out of the media. Um, in the 70s, but you add this additional layer of gender and sexuality to it, and it became, you know, a continuation of that conversation, um, you know, in relation to, um, you know, this the positioning of, of Black men, Black women versus white women. Um, and so I think that the more popular that women's basketball gets, I think the more that we're going to have these kinds of controversies, right? Because now everybody's watching. Mm -hmm. I mean, folks were watching that game. They were really invested in it. And it's that hyper visibility that brings out these broader cultural conversations. If nobody was watching, nobody would be having this conversation. But 
it's the increasing popularity that all of a sudden, oh, we need to understand this using these longstanding racial scripts. And it's almost like a knee jerk kind of reaction. Definitely. Well, guys, we were coming up on an hour and I honestly don't think we can get any better than this. I think we could <laughs> do another hour on like this subject alone. But Dr. Ron Sedler, thank you so much for spending the hour with us, especially during uh, your busy your busy season. Um, again, I've been your host, Alan Pettigrew Jr. Um, and my friends will sign us out. Once again, per usual, I'm Calvin McGowan. It's been a pleasure. You can find us on YouTube. If you listen, you can listen, also find us wherever you listen to your podcast. Join us on YouTube, like, share, subscribe, to some in the comments. This is a lot of fun. I'm just trying to make sure I get everything in. Yes. Well, Dixon, um, definitely read this book, Blackball, uh, Kareem, or LeBron passed Kareem, but it turns out <laughs> don't know about Kareem. Um, so, uh, you know, these, this, this book is very, very important, like the continuation of legacy, um, of these, uh, NBA pairs of the plat of, of the past that people are unfortunately, um, out of sight, out of mind kind of scenarios kind of place, um, which is not good, but books like this help, uh, put a foot down on, you know, some of these legacies and push forward, um, how they will engage in the future. So I really appreciate it actually. Thanks so much for having me on. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And do you have any other work that uh, you're currently working on so we can make sure our listeners get a hold of that? Um, I don't have any other published work right now other than my first book, which if you are a boxing aficionado, I wrote a international biography of Jack Johnson, the first ever Black World Heavyweight Champion. That book is called Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line. And it looks at him as uh, a global Black figure who inspired anti-colonial conversations around the world in the early 20th century. Guys, go ahead and get both of those books from Dr. Teresa Runstetler. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode.